Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. In this episode of a podcast of one's own, I'm delighted to be introducing a fascinating woman who is an author, an academic researcher, a political advisor, a former colleague, and a friend. Her name is Rowanna McClelland, and she has just published her first book, The Comforting Weight of Water. I have read this book twice because Rose shared her initial manuscript with me and I felt very special to be asked to give feedback on it. I've recently reread the book in its final form and enjoyed it all over again. Water, the environment, exploring the relationship between humans and the natural world are not just themes of Rose's book, they are themes of her life and she pursues them as an active feminist and deep thinker on gender inequality. I'm looking forward to exploring all of that with her today. Rowanna, welcome to a podcast of one's own. Thank you for having me. Delighted to have you. I want to spend time talking about your very intriguing new book, but I do want to start at the beginning and ask you to share with the audience a bit about where, when and how you grew up. I know you had a bit of a different childhood to most kids and I'd love to hear you describe it. It didn't feel too different to me, but I realise now that it certainly was. My first couple of years were spent in communes and communities around Australia, so my parents were very attracted to the idea of communal and community living, and so they sought out communities that had a bit of an eco-focus, but also that idea of shared resources, sharing work, sharing all of the labour, um, sharing the child-rearing. And so for my first five or so years, we lived in these communes between um, Victoria and South Australia, and it all seemed very, very normal to me, <laughs> and it wasn't until I um, left and started going to other primary schools and meeting other kids that I realised that not everyone had that experience. But it was very, very formative for me. I think it was an opportunity to see different ways and modes of living. And I think that's something that my parents have continued to pursue as I as I got older as well. When we came back to Adelaide after living in our last commune, so Adelaide in South Australia, my parents separated. And so then I had a very different experience of co-parents, um, but also my mum being a, a relatively young single mother in the 80s. I'm very reliant on government welfare for a long time while she got her university qualifications and entered the workforce. 
And my dad, I wouldn't describe him as an anarchist, but he certainly has elements of that. He, he can, has continued to seek out um, different ways and modes of living and has really pushed against some of the, the norms and rules that we have around um, the environment and, and how, how we should be living and, and how we should be structured as a modern society. So I think that's been really influential on me as well. So I grew up in this really, you know, sort of lovely co-parenting relationship after that. Um, both parents were really supportive and nurtured myself and my younger brother and encouraged us to push the rules a little bit I think growing up and I think that's been hugely influential on me. And having your younger brother when were you first conscious that girls get treated differently to boys was that part of your upbringing or it didn't happen until you were an adult? No it wasn't part of my upbringing at all. My mum always tells a story of me sitting in the back of a car one day on a drive to primary school and I was reading this book about dinosaurs and I got really angry and slammed the book shut and she said, what's wrong? And I said, well, this book says that dinosaurs came X number of years before mankind, but what about women? (laughs) She said I was so cranky and I stormed off into primary school that morning. And my parents certainly never treated my brother and I differently. You know, they were very, both of them very outdoorsy, but my dad in particular, he rock climbed, he bushwalked. And I think for him having two children, it was about us being out in the wild. You know, he never saw a difference between me and my brother. It was almost, you know, here's this, here's this cliff face, let's all go climb it, you know. And it's only, only as an adult I've reflected back on that and thought, you know, I really wasn't treated differently from my brother. And equally, I think having two single parents, my mother had the drills and the power tools and she did all the maintenance around the house because she had to. And my dad had to do the cooking and the cleaning because he was raising us by himself as well. And so I saw both parents take on those roles. They both expected that my brother and myself would take on those roles. And it wasn't really until I got through high school, I started getting jobs in hospitality, I started going to university, that this kind of barrage of gender norms rained down on me. And, you know, I suddenly realised that people were often treated very differently and it wasn't an experience I had had as a child, but I certainly found that as soon as I started working in pubs, working in bars, all of a sudden those gender norms were everywhere. Quite a shock. Yes, it was. (laughs) Like most authors, I suspect you grew up an avid reader. Is that true? And what about gender stereotypes in literature? You would have encountered those even if they weren't in your lived reality. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But I think I, because of the way my parents questioned and pushed against things, I think I probably viewed them quite academically, even from a young age and thought, oh, that's interesting. That's not right. I know, I know that not to be true. Isn't it interesting that they put this into this book? My parents were avid readers. My grandmother was an avid reader and a writer as well. And my mum really enjoyed literature. My dad really enjoyed science fiction and fantasy books. And so between all of them, I got this really diverse upbringing, you know, across genres. And I've, I've continued to read across genres in that way. So you emerge into adulthood, you're pretty free thinking, a love of the environment, but you're drawn to studying law. The question has to be posed, why? Yeah, I think I believed that you could make a difference through law. Um, I saw people doing that. I had, I think, probably very lofty aspirations of working as an activist or working in the community sector and really making a difference because I saw the law as something that was part of our world. I'm, I'm a slightly less anarchist than my dad is. And so, you know, I saw that there were these structures and systems and I thought, you know, there are ways that these can work for people and it's really important that people have access to those systems and understand those systems and that being a lawyer is one way that you could help people do that. 
And yet when you emerged from your law degree, you went to work for a commercial firm in environment and planning law, but still it wasn't a community legal centre. Why that choice? I think partly I was probably tempted by job security and money, which is it's really hard in the community sector and the jobs are few and far between and a lot of the roles are voluntary and you know, I had for a long time had been supporting myself and I think the, the practicality and the reality of it got to me in the end and, you know, very, very strong people go into the community sector and, and make a go of it. But I think I decided that private practice was an easier option. But I also had a few wise people say to me that there were opportunities to learn from being on the other side that we're really important to and that understanding the system from the other side can help you should you choose to go into advocacy in a different way and I certainly found that in the law firm you know we were often working on the side of either government or big corporations but it was really important to understand how that all operated and to get a better understanding of the system I think. You got itchy feet and you ended up being a political advisor, so that's quite a shift too. Once again, with a focus on water and the environment, these big themes in your life. Can you talk us through why you made that choice? I had a relatively good experience in law firms. You know, I know particularly a lot of women going into private practice, it's, it's really difficult. I had a great law firm. It was quite progressive. They had really good progressive gender policies at that time, which was unusual. But I did find the boundaries and the the structures around private practice just didn't work for me. I did have itchy feet. I wanted to try and make a difference. And I think that desire to make change was ignited again. And I viewed politics as a really important way of doing that. You know, I, I believe wholeheartedly in the, the power of politics and, and good political leaders and the difference that they can make. But I wanted it to be in an area and a space that was meaningful to me. And so a job opportunity came up to work for the Minister for Water and the River Murray in um, South Australia. The River Murray is South Australia's largest and you know one of the most important river systems. And so it was a really significant environmental role. So because that opportunity came up, I thought, yeah, actually, this is, this is something I'd like to try. Lots of people would only hear about political advisors when politicians are jibing each other about you've never had any real world experience (laughs) because you came into parliament having been a political advisor. So it's easy, I think, for people to get the impression that people only ever become political advisors if they've got their eyes on politics, they want to be a member of parliament. And yet you, I don't think, ever had that aspiration. So political advising, is it broader than people would think? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a real a misconception about politics in general. You know, it's often framed as, you know, a bit of a game and people trying to one-up each other. And I think that does a real disservice to politics because there are people that get into politics to be a leader, but often for very admirable and, and worthy reasons. But there's this whole raft of staff working behind politicians and many of them have no political aspirations but they're there because they want to make a difference and they're there to to learn and be involved in decision making at all different levels and that was certainly what attracted me and I think it it really gave me an opportunity to learn from some very good leaders you know I was very fortunate that everyone that I ended up working with was an incredible leader had really decent reasons for being there and gave me my first examples of stewardship, particularly towards the natural world, which has obviously remained very influential for me. But I also got to meet incredible 
public servants who were who were making a difference and I got to meet people in the community sector who were making a difference and advocates and um, volunteers and I guess almost a, a putting together the pieces of a puzzle of how our democracy works and how things happen and how things have an impact on people's lives. And I think that's remained influential for me in my academic work, where I now look at the community sector and how they can affect change along with sort of the legal sector and the government sector. But it's influenced my writing and my art as well. You know, it's teasing apart those pieces of the puzzle and seeing how it all fits together and, you know, how we can make things work better, I think has always been a central aim And that's something I got out of politics. And I think a lot of people get that out of politics and go off into different areas and take those lessons and and seek to make change in their own way. I've had the privilege of working with many political advisors doing tremendous work, but it's a pretty frantic pace. And you managed (laughs) to combine this frantic pace with having your two children. How did that work? Not sure I would recommend it (laughs) in (laughs) retrospect. You know, it was just something I did at the time. You know, it was my job and I was passionate about it and I decided um, I was going to have children. And it's certainly very hard, you know, politics for both the politicians and all of their staff. It's, it is fairly relentless. It's 24-7. It's not a job that you put down and, and pick up at different times. And so having the kids was tricky, but I firmly believed that I could come back after having my first lot of parental leave and continue working in the job that I had. And I pushed really hard for that. You know, there were a few doubts at the time about a political advisor coming back part-time, which is what I was asking for. Um, I had a few people say things like, you know, you won't come back. They they never do, you know, (laughs) that they being the working mums. But I felt like I could do it and I really wanted to do it. So I made an effort to, yeah, advocate for myself and and really push for that. And I was able to come back as a part-time advisor after that first lot of maternity leave and was really well supported and, and made that work. I mean, politics, fortunately, is changing a lot. But at this time, it would have been men who had predominantly the power in their hands to make that possible for you. What attitude did they have to the potential of a part-time advisor, a working mum? That made a huge difference. So, like I said, there was a bit of pushback the first time round, but I was really well supported by some of the senior men that I'd been working for who also wanted me back and believed that I could. So by the time I had my second child and wanted to come back, there was almost no doubt that I could I could make that work. You know, I'd done the groundwork. <laughs> they believed they, they had seen the evidence. They knew that I could that I could do that. So when I was on maternity leave the second time around, I was asked if I would come back but accept a promotion in the Premier's office, so the Premier of South Australia. I said yes. I knew that there were senior men in that office as well who were very supportive of me and were, were advocating for me to come into that role. And actually, when I first started, I mean, I was very nervous. I was very anxious about making that work. It is, it is a hard juggle, and I don't want to understate that at all. You know, there were times when it was very tricky. And coming back with a, an 18-month-old and uh, <laughs> a newborn into a part-time role in the Premier's office was really daunting. But... The senior leadership, who were mostly men at that time, all ended up having babies and young children at the same time. And they were very keen to be involved in their children's life, which shouldn't be remarkable, but it was. And so they also demanded time off for their children and flexibility. And I think that was the key difference because I never felt like having to make time or juggle my family responsibilities was a gendered issue because all the men around me were doing it as well. So it was certainly a a parent issue. 
but it wasn't a gendered issue. And so when the senior men would say things like, I'm going to be late to work today, the twins have gastro, that made it okay for me to do the same thing and for it not to be equated to my gender or linked to my gender. And that made a huge difference. So although it's unfortunate that all the senior leadership were men, you know, that's still a a problem in politics. The fact that they were willing to advocate for family life made the world of difference to me as a working mum. Such a fantastic example. I mean, at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, we talk so much about the role of men and if it's normalised, both men and women use the family-friendly flexibilities, then no-one pays a penalty for it, but just the absolutely perfect example. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That was very much my experience. Now, governments uh, get voted in and they get voted out and people see that happen on TV. They watch the election night coverage and politicians give concession speeches. But not many people would think about, oh, what happens with all of the staff? What happened for you? Oh, well, you know, in Australia, if you were linked to that government as a political staffer, you hand in your passes and your computers on the Friday, you have the election on the Saturday. If you're unsuccessful at the election, you wake up the next morning and you have no job and you never go back in again. It's um, really surreal. And so that's what happened to me and, you know, my sort of 60 plus colleagues who were in the same boat. And after years and years of juggling the kids work I was chipping away at a master's of law at the same time you know I'd kind of been go 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 for the best part of 10 or more years I woke up on that Sunday morning after the election with absolutely nothing and deafening silence and into that deafening silence came some inspiration which led to the writing of your book The Comforting Weight of Water what was that inspiration um look I think it was a it was a couple of things I decided to keep my kids in childcare and to take a little bit of time to work out what I wanted to do next. It's interesting, I felt really selfish doing that. I felt really uncomfortable with it. I felt like I couldn't possibly be keeping the kids in care if I didn't have something structured that I needed to be doing and that it was really self-indulgent to be taking this time. But I also thought this isn't going to happen again until I retire. You know, this is such a unique opportunity. I'm going to take a pause. I'm going to take a breather and sit with some of the things that... I've learned about in the last 10 years, but really haven't had time to contemplate, really haven't had time to reflect on. And I'm going to take a little bit of time for myself. I'm going to go for long hikes. (laughs) I'm going to do all that kind of wellness and well-being stuff that I haven't been able to do because of the juggle. Two things happened. I decided I was going to apply for a PhD. I thought I really want to research these environmental issues a bit more. I want to specialise. I think I I can make a difference doing some really meaty research work here. But the other thing that happened is this little voice and story came into my head as I was taking these long walks and, you know, thinking about life, the universe and everything. And I didn't really know what it was or what to do with it, but I thought I would start writing it down. It felt like a story. I hadn't really done much writing before, but I think I had this idea in my head that they say it's really good for your well-being and your mental health to write things down. So I'll just start doing this as a, a little hobby and, and see how I go. But as time went on, the story progressed. And after a couple of months, I looked at it and thought, I think I've actually written a book. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've written a book. Yeah. <laughs> And yet this took the courage to not only take the pause, but for quite a period of time you structured your working life so that you would have time to pursue these other interests, to do the writing, to do the thinking. 
It must be quite hard to hold space for yourself like that. I mean, Virginia Woolf, for whom this podcast is named, is famous for her saying, in order to write, a woman needs a room of her own. But you really lived that. I mean, how tough was it to do that? It was difficult for myself. Like I said, it felt incredibly self-indulgent. I thought, who am I to just, you know, take this leisure time to just think and ponder? (laughs) But I also had a lot of people saying things to me like, you know, it would be such a shame if you didn't do something. You know, what are you going to do next? It was almost like this wasting of potential that I didn't throw myself into something equally hectic straight away. But I just had this sense that, no, I need I need to take this time. I'm never going to get this again. And if I hadn't taken that time and really do nothing, you know, not do the child rearing, not do the stuff around the house that had been sitting there for 10 years, you know, by just taking that time, taking myself for walks, letting myself think. I almost unlocked this entire creative side that I didn't know that I had. I don't think that that would have happened if I hadn't had that time. It was only a space of, you know, two months, really. But if I'd gone into the next role, I never would have listened to that voice, never would have taken the time to start writing. And I don't think many women in particular ever get that opportunity. You know, it's very, very tricky. It's a room of one's own. It's quiet, away from the noise of of daily life. And it's also money, which I think is a really difficult part for creatives, but particularly for women is, you know, having that safety net and that space to be able to take two months off and, and just, you know, be with your thoughts. And in this period, you worked with me on and off on two occasions, actually, in my office. And yet you didn't talk when you were working (laughs) together with me and the team about writing the rest of the time. You're obviously shy about that. Why did you find that difficult? Because it is quite logical. You know, you could have said, I've been interested in the natural environment and human beings and their relationship with it all of my life and now I'm trying to do a creative thing with that in a book. But you felt like you couldn't. Why was that? Well, when you say it like that, it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) But that wasn't my internal monologue at all. Um, It was just imposter syndrome. You know, I hadn't been writing. I'd been writing professionally. You know, I wrote speeches, I wrote policy documents, I wrote media releases, I wrote all the time. But I hadn't creatively written since I was five or six at school so I had imposter syndrome you know I thought there's all these brilliant writers out there who am I to think that I can just pick up a laptop and start tapping out a you know a book and it will be anything worthy but I'm trying much harder to get used to that idea now and I've obviously obviously had a lot of validation along the way but at the time I was just I was nervous to tell people because I didn't think I'd be taken seriously I didn't think I could do it and there was also something or felt slightly wanky in a way as well. Like, look at me, I've got this little break from work and I'm writing my novel. (laughs) You know, I'm sure so many people do that. But it's interesting, late last year, a a senior academic said to a number of kind of junior academics, uh, women, who were talking about imposter syndrome, she said something like, at what point are you going to take hold of your own neuroses and take responsibility for your own project? And I think about that almost every day now. So I'm actually trying to shelve the imposter syndrome and stop talking about it and stop thinking about it because she's so right. My academic work is a, is a project and it's, it's worthy and it's got purpose. And I, I feel the same way about my writing now as well. I'm trying very hard to embrace that and understand it as a project that does have purpose and it particularly has purpose in the gender and the climate space. So I'm not doing imposter syndrome anymore. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And what was the bridge from sort of secretly writing on your laptop to me being here able to hold a book? <laughs> How did that happen? Well, as, as I said, I was being quite secret and anxious about it. I, I have a friend, Hannah Stark, who's an academic and she, she works in the literature space. I've known her since I was a week old and I knew that if I sent it to her, she would first of all have a really good eye but she would also be really mean if <laughs> if it wasn't any good. Like she would, I knew she would be honest and she wouldn't hold back. So she was the first person I sent it to and she read it and she came back with some feedback and comments that were really useful. But the one thing she also said was, yes, well, you've written a book, which for her, incredibly high praise. She said, yes, this is, this is a thing, yes. <laughs> and so that gave me the confidence to then start entering it into unpublished manuscript competitions, to start trying to seek out publishers and agents and, yeah, see if someone else thought it was a thing too. And that did happen. It's a prize-winning book already. Yeah, yeah. It won the um, South Australian Arts SA Wakefield Press Unpublished Manuscript Award, which is an unpublished manuscript award in South Australia that also came with publication as part of the prize. So I won that in 2022 and have, yes, publication a year later with Wakefield Press. And so the comforting weight of water is in a good bookstore near everyone listening to this podcast. I want to turn now directly to the book, which is set in the near future, yet in an unrecognisable world. Rain pounds constantly with respite of just one hour a day. And in this incredibly oppressive, dangerous environment, referred to as the wet, a teenager who remains nameless throughout the book runs wild. The teenager lives in a small ramshackle hut teetering on the edge of a ferocious and ever-expanding river with an old lady called Gammy who is trapped inside basically because she can't cope with the danger of the rain, the mud and the floods. At night when the teenager returns, Gammy tells stories about the world before the wet and how this apocalyptic present came to be. And the only other inhabitants of this world you've created are a handful of terrified and very broken villagers. They rely on but also fear, even hate, the teenager who flourishes in the endless rain and can gather food and supplies. And these powerful and mixed emotions create a sinister cat and mouse game between them. Now, one thing that really struck me when reading the book is that we are, of course, witnessing a coming-of-age story but it's in a setting where there's no gender role models, social norms, cues, that's effectively being washed away. And it really is begging the question, who would we all be if we lived without any gender stereotyping? And what do you want people to think about and feel as they read the book and see that gender or lack of gender stereotyping woven throughout it? 
Yeah, I really, really wanted to play with those ideas of gender stereotyping from a young age. When I started writing the book, I was trailing around behind my, my children. They were very young at the time in the Adelaide Botanic Gardens and it was raining and I was kind of watching the way that they played and I thought... What would happen if you took these two kids away from all the gender norms that they're subjected to right from birth? You know, the pink for girls, blue for boys, all of that kind of rubbish and put them in the wild where they learn to survive. And I fundamentally believe that there would be no difference. And that's that was my feeling growing up. That's something that I took with me right through my childhood. You know, anytime someone tried to tell me girls do X, boys do X, just never rang true to me, you know, from my lived experience. But then you know, as I've gotten older, we know from the evidence that that's not true either and that so many of these gender binaries are incredibly artificial and are imposed on children from a very young age. So I really deliberately wanted to wash that entire society away and say, okay, put these people, these survivors in this place, how do they behave? How do those gender relationships evolve and develop and how different could it actually be? So it was a very deliberate choice to to structure a society where there was almost no hope of having those gender norms imposed on a child from a young age. Gammy through her stories gives glimpses of what's led to the wet, of the environmental and social collapse that's taken the story to where you set it. And she talks about what it means to be a woman during that time. It's a confronting read because we do know that climate change has differential impacts on women. You deliberately chose to focus on that angle and is that because you wanted people to be thinking about how climate change impacts women differently? Yeah, I did. I wanted people to be thinking about that. I wanted to draw that out because we... We know that that's already happening. Climate change is already disproportionately affecting women. And we know that those effects are going to increase as climate change increases. So I wanted to write a story where that has already happened. And in order for us to be able to reflect on that impact. But also, I wanted to draw that out because there is still a very kind of gendered coverage of climate issues and a gendered element to climate decision making which given the effects on women that we anticipate or and know to have already happened is so kind of unequal and unlevel and disproportionate because we should be having women and other diverse voices involved in these conversations and it's something that comes up in my research and it's something that I wanted to draw out in the book as well. You definitely did. And we get to see the world through the eyes of a child who doesn't remember times before the wet and who listens to Gammy's stories and hears them about farming and shopping and the social constructs that used to exist. And the teenager thinks all of this is just hilarious, you know, really odd behaviour. Why did anybody ever do those things? So it's a very playful way in which you pull apart some quite serious issues about the way we live now. How did you think about deliberately constructing that? It's a very clever device and I found myself at times just laughing along, (laughs) uh, looking through this child's eyes back at our own world and seeing ridiculousness in it. Yeah, and I think there is some ridiculousness in it and it's okay to think about serious issues in a playful way, particularly if it's a way of explaining those issues or interrogating them a little bit and thinking about them and drawing out the absurdity as seen through the eyes of a child, I think is a very effective way to start to pull apart some of the ideas and the concepts that we cling to. And, you know, I've, I've read a lot of speculative fiction, dystopian fiction. It can be very depressing. 
I don't think there's anything wrong with injecting a little element of absurdity and ridiculousness into that because surely that would happen <laughs> in our future. You know, there would be things that were ridiculous. There'd be things that would make us laugh. Even in the most dire of circumstances, there would be an element of playfulness as well, I think. I think one of the great strengths of the book is you have achieved, you know, light and shade in it. I mean, there's moments of laughter, moments of joy, as well as this sort of sense of the oppression of the wet and this cat and mouse game with the villagers and you're worried about a potential impending doom. You've you've really woven the tension in, but there are some great moments of humour in it, so I'd recommend it as a great read to Thank anyone. You. You dedicate the book to your children, to yep. Alfred and Madeline, and to Ruth McCants. Can you tell me about Ruth? Yeah, yeah. This is something we didn't talk about when um, we were talking about my childhood. So I was I was very lucky to have very loving parents who co-parented really well for myself and my brother. But my dad repartnered when I was about six years old with a woman called Ruth who entered our lives and became, although we didn't, we never categorised it like this, but she was a stepmother or another parent figure who lived with us and loved us and cared for us. And she she was a huge influence. She was incredibly outdoorsy as well, like both of my parents were. She loved the environment, loved nature, and made sure my brother and I were always outside in some way or another. She, she once took us on this ridiculous four-day outdoor canoeing trip where it rained the entire time. <laughs> and I think I must have been about seven or eight, you know, with this rain pouring down in this canoe, canoeing to our campsite, setting it up in the rain. But we loved it, you know. We had dark chocolate that night and she'd give us little nips of port to keep us warm and we just thought it was the most amazing adventure. So she was a really special part of our lives, so much so that when her and my father eventually separated, we ended up with this bizarre three-way custody arrangement where we would spend a week with mum, a week with dad, but then every second Tuesday night with Ruth, (laughs) which continued on well through my teenage years. And then she remarried a lovely man called Trent, and he became, again, another kind of special figure in our lives growing up. And I maintained this relationship with Ruth um, right into my 30s. And, you know, she was sort of a mentor, friend, aunt, sister, mother figure, all all wrapped into one, sort of very hard to explain our relationship, but incredibly close. And I remember when you were working with me in my office that you got some very terrible news about Ruth. Are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, when I was working in your office, I got a phone call to say that Ruth, who had been mountaineering in the Himalayas had gone missing with a number of her uh, group. They hadn't returned to the base camp after setting out to trek through a mountain that day. And they were missing for uh, quite a number of days. It was a really kind of admirable search by the Indian government and eventually their bodies were located. They'd um, been taken out by an avalanche in the Himalayas and um, were sort of retrieved from that point some weeks later. And there was very intense media interest in all of this, I remember. Yeah, yeah, it was very... um, very public, which was, you know, something I hadn't experienced before and very visceral as well. You know, there were sort of images and from the mountains and the search and the retrieval of the bodies that were sort of very publicly available, which was a, a kind of really public way to deal with sort of a very private grief and trauma. And when you think back on Ruth now, and obviously she was someone who 
went out in the world in that way. How do you think about it? How do you rationalise it? She had a really adventurous spirit, but I'm always really reluctant to describe her as an adventurer because, you know, that kind of denotes thrill-seeking or or some kind of desire to conquer the natural world. And I certainly never understood what she did as that. You know, she, she trekked, she hiked, she sailed, she skied, she mountaineered. But... I think she did that because she just liked being out there. It was just where she felt most free and most herself. I think she was a little bit wild herself in that way. And she spent as much time being quiet and still in those places as she did mountain climbing or sailing or skiing or whatever the case may be. So, you know, we would go on these big hikes together, you know, well into my 30s and she would force me to just stop and to sit in silence with her for hours at a time and just look at a view or just be in a place. And that was really important to her. I think she tried to grapple with a lot of issues around the way we relate to nature and the way us as humans live in the world. And she thought about that a lot and she was deeply thoughtful. So when I think about her, all my memories of her are intrinsically bound up with nature and being in the outside world. But I think what she taught me is that you can love and respect and fear nature in equal measures. And she never underestimated the force of nature. She, you know, she was very respectful, but also very fearful at times in terms of some of the things that she did. You know, she never went in gung-ho to these things. She was, she was often quite scared and she was really honest about her fear of being in those places. And I think that's really healthy. You know, that's the natural world has its own agency. You know, it's not something we can control as much as we would like to. And that can be a very uncomfortable place to be. But she taught me, I think, how to sit with that discomfort and to be okay with that discomfort. Mm, An incredible life lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to come now to the questions that I use at the end of each podcast. (laughs) One is to uh, give a fact to my guest and yours is really a summary that comes from the United Nations which says that the climate crisis is not gender neutral. The UN says climate change is a threat multiplier and by that it means that women and girls will face increased forms of gender-based violence, conflict-related sexual violence, human trafficking, child marriage and other forms of violence as our world changes. Does any of that surprise you? No, not at all. Um, You know, it's something I see in my research but it is something I try to draw out in the book as well. As I said, it's a it's not a sort of speculative <laughs> future. I think it's something that you know we know could happen, but it doesn't need to. So I think being aware of that now and talking about that now and understanding the impact that climate change is going to have on women and drawing women into the conversation and other, other voices into the conversation about climate change is really important because we do know this. This is a fact. What's the worst misogyny you've ever had to face? Uh, when I was involved in a a very significant negotiation, I won't say what industry or what job it was, dealing with some very, very important men. We were getting to the pointy end of the negotiation. I was a a very junior staff member at the time and one of these senior men put his arm around me and said to my boss, I tell you what, I'll agree if you throw her in. (gasps) And I was, I was like in my 20s, I, you know, I was taking my job very seriously. I had no idea what to do. And fortunately, my boss was infuriated. He was a man and he was just, you know, outraged. But this was just, you know, this bloke just thought that was completely acceptable. Yeah, 
heavens. <laughs> if you had all the power in the world for one moment and you could change one thing for women, what would it be? Oh, there are so many things I would change. It's almost hard to, to go with one. But I think the one thing I would change is to have men do some of the work in this space. So to to first of all believe women when we tell them what our lived experience is like, but then to look at the data, look at the research, do some of their own investigation, be outraged on our behalf <laughs> and translate into action because I think a lot of us are really tired of, of, of trying to explain this over and over again, even to the really decent men in our lives and having to do all that labour. So the one thing I would change is that um, they would just kind of take it up from here. <laughs> I like that. Now, I normally conclude by putting a Virginia Woolf quote to my guests, but I'm going to change it up for you. Oh, We've okay. already referred to Virginia Woolf. And so I'm going to put a quote to you because, Ro, I know you are an incredibly smart woman, a really deep thinker, but you also have this amazing attraction to trashy gossip. <laughs> In fact, if I ever need to know anything about celebrity gossip, you're the oracle on it. And so I'm going to put to you a quote from Caitlin Moran, who wrote in How to Be a Woman. She says... In the interregnum between female emancipation and female politicians, businesswomen and artists finally coming into true equality, celebrity culture is the forum in which we currently inspect and debate the lives, roles and aspirations of women. Tabloids, magazines and the Daily Mail work by means of turning the lives and careers of a few dozen women into a combination of living soap and daily morality lesson. On the good side, responding to the gigantic desire to examine the modern female condition, but on the bad side, leaving subjects ostensibly powerless to write their own narrative or express their analysis of the matter. This is why any modern feminist worth her salt has an interest in the business of A-list gossip. It is the main place where the perception of women is currently being formed. Now, is that just the world's most convoluted excuse? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, um, I think it's a brilliant quote and I 100% back it. And I'd go even further, which again might just be me justifying my own interests. But I believe it's also the place where women can make the most change, potentially, you know, alongside law and politics. I think celebrity culture and pop culture is a forum for ideas to take hold and develop and for movements to start and for change to start. And I think there's been a real gender bias for a long time around those sources of information and those forums. And there's this real kind of, you know, women like it, it's silly, it's frivolous, you know, it's not you know the stuffy economic newspaper that I read. So therefore, you know, it doesn't mean anything. But for so many people that don't have access to decision makers, this is an avenue and a forum for them to put their ideas out there and for those ideas to take hold. And I think we saw that with Me Too as a really good example. And I think the pace of change that came out of that was incredible. And in a lot of ways, you know, law and government and policy lags behind and takes a while to, to catch up to that. But I think, you know, understanding why having the first First Nations bachelorette 
on TV was important and what that means and then understanding the terrible behaviour of the men on that show and dissecting that and talking about it and throwing those ideas around, that's when we start to actually dissect these ideas around gender. And for so many people, this is their main forum for information, but it's also their main forum for putting information out there and making change. So no, I think it's not even a place where perceptions are formed. I think it's kind of where everything's happening at the moment. (laughs) I can now imagine this being the most listened to segment ever of a podcast of one's own because every time someone has indulged in watching trash TV or reading <laughs> uh, trash stuff in online or in magazines, they're going to come back to this as their justification. So <laughs> thank you for putting it and thank you for a fantastic conversation. Thank you. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the institute, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Becca Shepherd, Connie Blafari and Alina Ecott, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas on who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash G-I-W-L and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at G-I-W-L Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us next time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,